How do we gain a sense of self from our parents? What does it mean to be a parent, a child? Familial relationships are foundational, but they're also often complicated. In our growing up, we form thoughts, opinions, and beliefs about our own identity and about how we relate to the world around us. On this episode of The Rector's Cupboard, we're going to be talking about fathers and sons. We could say fathers and daughters, fathers and children. We are doing so because the topic is meaningful on its own, but also because it speaks to how we see ourselves and how we see what it means to be human. Is your dad a good dad? Was your dad a good dad? Are you a good son or daughter? Are you a good father or mother? Our often confused and distorted ideas of fatherhood have done great damage to our ideas and concepts of God. Is God's power expressed in vanquishing foes and rescuing us? Do we feel the love of God because we somehow impress God with our morality, our right choices? Is God pleased with us because of what we have achieved or become? There are many biblical images of the relationship between a father and a son, many passages that speak of family. It's right there in one of the most well-known pieces of scripture that we are instructed to honor your father and your mother. It's listed immediately after how we are instructed to relate to God, that we are told how to relate to our parents. Honor them. What does that mean? Could it be more than politeness and obedience? Proverbs 22.6, a passage that gives the advice to train up a child in the way he should go, with the often desired end result that even when he is old, he will not depart from it. What does this verse imply, or seem to imply, about the failure of parents whose children don't grow up as they would have wished? I've sometimes thought it odd that the church has taken parenting advice from a man who had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Seems like the type of guy most Christians today wouldn't be wishing to model their families after. Maybe we should be looking towards Jesus, God incarnate, the ultimate son, as to what a good familial relationship looks like. In Matthew 7, Jesus tells us that God is loving, the giver of good gifts, the one who takes care of his children. He even gives those he's speaking to the benefit of the doubt that they can't be that bad of parents. Which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? I'm very glad that even earthly parents instinctively give their children bread and not stones. If God is to be the ultimate example of fatherhood, what does that mean? We can often get sidetracked and stuck in the metaphorical language used in the Bible. It can become hard to detangle poor examples of fatherhood we may have experienced from how we're supposed to understand our relationship with God to function or our relationships with others. I've recently been encouraged to remember that implicit in metaphorical language are limitations, ways in which that which you are describing is like the other thing and ways in which it's not. Family is tricky. It's always tricky. In spite of the language that we use or our best attempts not to mess things up, we always will. It's not in the perfection of family that family is found, but rather in the seeking to see and understand the other imperfect humans with whom you find yourself grouped. American novelist and screenwriter Michael Chabon wrote a beautiful piece in GQ magazine in 2016 about his son. It is so beautiful. We'll put a link in the episode notes, and you should read it. He writes, You are born into a family, and those are your people, and they know you, and they love you, and if you are lucky, they even, on occasion, manage to understand you. May we seek to understand each other. Today, we welcome David Goa, 
an Eastern Orthodox sage, though he likely wouldn't call himself that, back to the cupboard for a conversation about fathers and sons, the ways in which we remember those who have passed, the church's obsession with moralism and concepts of identity and masculinity. Thank you. In 1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the rector's cupboard. Order. Well, sure, Ken, here, thank you. Welcome, everybody, again. It is indeed a joy to be here. It seems like every time is different. Uh, we're here with uh, Allison, who's welcomed us to end on the introduction. Thank Hello. You, and Ken Bell, our cupboard master, is here as well. Hello. And uh, Rick is on the board, producer Rick. Hello. And Amanda is here as well, but she's without Mike, so we'll say hello on, on her behalf. Uh, and we want to welcome David Goa. David is a professor, teacher, theologian, been a museum curator, uh, traveled the world teaching uh, all kinds of things. But uh, for us, as these things happen, you are sometimes introduced to people through what they do, or uh, in this case, what they've written. Um, but it's a joy when you can say that... Uh, those people have become friends, and David has become for us a friend, uh, someone who blesses us with wisdom and friendship and blesses us with joy. Uh, we're here, as Allison said, to talk about family and particularly fathers and sons, and we thought it would be good to uh, take the first number of minutes, the first little segment here, and just uh, myself and David have a conversation about our dads. Um, so David, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you. It's always lovely to see you. Uh, so so great to see you. You're in Edmonton, and we're here in Vancouver, and uh, uh, having to keep distance uh, even from the people that are really close with us. We'd love to be with you in person and look forward to that again. So, But David, I thought uh, something really simple to start, or you can take this kind of where you will, but uh, tell me about your dad. Well, that's... Um Probably not a simple matter. <laughs> <laughs> my father, uh, my father was a carpenter, and he had oak in his veins. And uh, he was uh, he was part of the Norwegian Pietist world, which was very critical of clergy. Uh, my father's view was that clergy, unfortunately, didn't have any oak in their veins; they only had other human beings to tell them who they were. And we always lie to them, not because we want to, but because that's the nature of human discourse. But because he had oak in his veins, he could glue two pieces of oak together. And in the morning, he would find out whether or not he had done it right. Mm. Uh, because he would come downstairs to his carpenter shop, pick up the oak and try to break it along the glue line. And if it didn't break, it spoke to him about doing doing things with integrity and knowledge. And on one occasion when he did this, 
our, our our minister had been down talking with him and I'd been restrained from going there. And, and um, the minister was engaged in confessing. My father was a confessor to clergy because they didn't dare talk uh, to most people in the church. <laughs> so uh, when I went down there and my father said to me, you know, Sonny Boy, he always called me Sonny Boy for Sonny Boy cereal. He said, you know, Sonny Boy, our pastor, Pastor Swaven, he doesn't have any oak in his life. He just has us. So we need to pray for him because we always lie to him. But you know, Sonny Boy, I've got oak in my veins. And he put, picked up this piece of oak, which he had prepared to repair the boat of the pastor and tried to snap it. He said, so be careful, Sonny Boy. Don't become a minister. <laughs> That's really good. Oh, well, I think that's a nice way to uh, to respond to the request to tell us about your dad. I'll tell you a little bit about my dad. Uh, use the oak in, oak in his veins kind of uh, uh, teaching point for us. For my dad, I think the teaching point would be kind of the straddling of worlds. I guess you could say this about a lot of dads, but my dad was born, I guess, 1942 in Leamington, Ontario. Leamington was in the news again today because it used to be, it was the place where the Heinz ketchup plant was. Mm -hmm. And the whole town kind of was, much of the employment in the town was, they had a big tomato, just like New York was the big apple. I heard when I was a kid that New York was the big apple, but I had experience of Leamington being, they had a big tomato right in the center of town. That was like the tourist uh, place where you could go. Uh, my dad was born there, he's an only child. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, he grew up and obviously I didn't know much about his growing up. My, my Nana would tell me stories, but um, uh, Mennonite town, Mennonite faith. Uh, but my dad became fairly successful. Uh, and uh, he always he always used to he was one of these people that uh, he, he said, I had it easy in my life uh, because all I had to do was just kind of go just do things mostly properly. I went, he said, I went to tech, tech school for two years, finished that, and then had my choice of employment. And as long as I just uh, didn't do anything stupid, I raised in the ranks and eventually he became quite high up at what at the time was called Ontario Hydro and retired at 50 or something, I guess, and then started his own consulting business and did really well there. And so I sometimes think of my dad at the beginning of his life and what the world was like and what Mennonite culture was like. And then um, at the end of his life, which was just this past summer and how, um, how far he had gone. He was someone who was uh, very affectionate and who uh, saw the humanity in all people. He was a great uh, model for me. And, uh, and his death when it came this summer was, was sudden and jarring. And part of the reason that, David, we wanted to speak with you about fathers and sons. In my experience as a son, uh, most of my life I actually lived apart from my dad. I lived only seven years uh, with my dad. That was um, with a, a split in the middle, so until I was three and then, and then for four years after that. Um, I, had, I knew that my dad loved me and he was a great father even though there was that distance. I wanted to ask you, David, do you think that this chasm, so for me, I could feel this chasm that was often defined by a distance. We lived thousands of miles apart uh, and he did his best uh, over that distance. But do you think that this chasm is something that people feel 
to their fathers, often even without that geographical distance, that there is some kind of um, separation that is looking to be filled. Yeah, that's a, that's a profound question in our society. You know, in our society, because of the way in which men and women, boys and girls have grown up, it's been so common for men to be disconnected mm. from their deep feelings. It's been so common for men to be encouraged to be strong, to never shed a tear, to never express serious emotion, to never show their vulnerability or their limitations. My sense is that that's sort of ubiquitous in our culture. Mm. And it's a disease mm. because what goes along with it is the inability of men and of fathers to actually bless their children. Because anytime you bless somebody, you feel your own limitations. You feel the, the fact that the eternal is invading time. Mm. You feel finitude. When I say to my children, may God bless you and keep you. Keep you. What does that mean? Mm. May God make his face to shine upon you and to give you not peace, but his peace. Mm -hmm. So all of that, all of that kind of blessing and that language of the eternal is a language of the temporal, is a language which really roots you in your finitude. So my sense is that that kind of way in which men largely exist in this society has cut them off from the act of blessing as well. One of my, you know, I have such lovely... I've been so blessed by this because my father, every time he would come home, even late at night working, would come into my room, into my sister's room. And even if you were asleep, I mean, I remember many mm -hmm. times just barely coming out of my sleep a little bit. And he would put his hands on my head and he would pray that great benediction. Mm -hmm. And I would continue to sleep. When I was 15, the summer I was 16, I worked at a job uh, that he was the supervisor on, actually. It was mm. uh, building the greenhouses here at the legislative building. And it was an amazing experience. I saw the Mohawks do steel on it. And that was a remarkable thing to see. These, the unbelievable strength of these steel-working men that had come from Ontario. <clears throat> In any case, that summer, and this, I think, is to this question that you raise, which is so significant. My mother or my father came into my room sort of midsummer and sat down on my bed, which he rarely did. And uh, I sort of turned around. I remember it. I was reading Wilhelm Wilnelbahn's <laughs> History of Philosophy of All Things, and I understood nothing. But As I was one struggling. does at 16? 16. So, 16, so sure. I, I, um, I turned to him and I saw that he had tears in his eyes. And he stood up and I stood up. I didn't know what was going on. And he put his arms around me. And as he wept, he prayed that blessing again. And then he said to me, Sonny boy, 
your mother and I have done everything we can do. And we hope we've done it well. But you are becoming a man. And since you are becoming a man, I want to bless you on the way. And I tell you, I will no longer stay awake at night for you. I will no longer ask you what you're doing. Anytime you wish to talk with me, I am there for you. But go. And I hope that God gives us the opportunity to meet again when you become a man. Uh, it's, it's, this, was his, this was his sending forth yeah. and his initiation. I think he knew in his bones that he was, because he was, a very powerful kind of mm. presence and human being. And I think he knew he had to sort of formally like let you out of his shadow. A let bit. me go. Yeah. Let me out of his shadow. Yeah. If there was any chance that we would ever ever be able to meet again, I think it was. So, so this is about faith. Mm. This was my father's expression of faith, a kind of confidence mingled with hope that maybe, just maybe we would be given the chance to see each other again on different ground. Different, yeah. I knew I was always his son, yeah. but now I had to discover that I was also going to be an adult yeah. and meet him face to face. As an adult, as two adults. The, I, I had one more question and it's gonna combine um, something that, uh, you were one of the first people I spoke with after my dad died. Um, which I, I think now it's interesting to me because uh, it's not like we talk a lot, but I, I knew that I would feel blessed by by you. And uh, so I, I talked to you about this. Um, I sent you a message and then right away you phoned me and we spoke. And I remember you saying, I still remember it, I feel it now. And you never knew my dad, but but you said, "Oh, he's he's now of blessed memory." And that term, memory, and and that of blessed memory, of course, has mourning and blessing and memory in it. And so, I just one of the things that's interesting to me, and even as you tell us this story, is that for many of us, or for all of us, our dads kind of exist more in our memory. <laughs> than in often our experience. And I think this is true even of people whose dads are still alive. That yeah. it is holding them in memory, remembering certain scenes or pictures or times yeah. when they were a teenager or a child. So I just wanted to ask you about memory in, in general and then this term of blessed memory, what it means. Because um, it, and I know that you can't ever fully encapsulate, tell us what it means but why it's a blessing when we hear it. Well, you know, you grow up with your parents, at least to some extent. You certainly grow up in their presence, even if they're absent. Their presence is still there. And um, uh, the beautiful introduction to this that um, that you spoke to when you introduced the segment. I was very, uh, very touched by all of that. This 
this confusion mm. that exists in our society so often between mothers and fathers, between the role of mothers and fathers, this, this difficulty we have of appreciating the paternal characteristics of mothers and the maternal characteristics of fathers. You know, we don't even have much language for it, uh, much less a lot of embodiment for it in many, many circumstances. But memory, memory is, is a way of treasuring mm -hmm. and a way of trying to call close, trying to call the nearby into your into your presence again and um, particularly when our certainly when our parents die um, and we feel at least i do and i know that you do mm -hmm. you feel your father's presence so viscerally even in his departure so viscerally, even in his departure, that <clears throat> the possibility of memory is, it, it, it is an avenue for us to bring a significant person who we are told in the Decalogue to honor, which itself is such an interesting thing, huh? Mm -hmm. It does not say love. That's too much. That's even too much for God to request of human beings. It says honor. Because of that memory, and I, when we spoke that day, when your father had left this world, I knew that you loved your father. Because your memory, and that's not sentimental. No. It's not some kind of abstraction. It is, it is a, a deep holding near with all of the sorrow and all of the difficulties, yeah. a deep holding near. So in my Orthodox tradition, when someone leaves this life, we normally say memory eternal. Memory eternal. May their memory be, may their memory come to green in us. May their memory come to be life-giving in us. May their memory be a Pentecost for us. Wow. May they resurrect with a fullness that we never witnessed before. What a beautiful thing. And that would be, uh, you can feel that. I think whether it's said in particular like, theological terms or the different ways that people say that, I think we're going to introduce Ken Bell in just a minute. Ken, you can get ready for the cupboard. Ken, our cupboard master, will join us. But as a segue, I'm thinking about, uh, so my dad's service, the only service we could do, of course, because you can't gather right now. And so it was some time after he died. Uh, he died at the end of August, and the service was just a few days before Thanksgiving. And at that point, I wasn't allowed to travel out to Ontario. Even they weren't. They were even saying like small gatherings weren't allowed. So, I joined this little service. Uh, it was at a church graveyard. He had he had uh, bought a plot for him and my stepmom 
uh, right beside the church, like old style. And uh, he was cremated, so there was just this little small hole in the ground. His ashes were going to be buried, and a minister that they kind of knew. My dad used to sing in a gospel quartet, and he had, he had sung with him a few times, this guy. And he's like an Anglican um, deacon. He did the service, and it was okay. It was pretty good. The minister did a nice job. And, uh, and I was just watching by FaceTime. My sister was holding up her phone. And, uh, and it ended, and I guess I could only see a certain portion of what was going on, obviously, just what my Michelle was holding the phone up to. And the minister kind of was out of frame all of a sudden. He read the benediction at the end, and, and he was out of frame. It was like 15 minutes total, the service. And then Michelle said, and she's not uh, really, uh, uh, um, she doesn't go to church all the time and a ton of services to know kind of what comes next. So then I see the phone turn towards my sister's face. She's got her mask on and she's looking at, the, at her phone and she just, so I can see her now. And she just says, what do we do now? And I'm like, well, I don't know. I get, she's like, well, he just drove away. The minister just drove away. <laughs> oh, no. And, uh, this is so like my dad for something like this to happen. And I'm like, well, and I could. S- then she turns the phone around again. I said, well, there's the hole where I said, I assume they're going to bury the ashes. In. And she's like, oh, I don't, I don't know. And I said, can you see anybody around who's like got <laughs> shovels or sitting? And she's like, no, I don't see. I said, where are the ashes? She's like, I don't know. I think they're in Brennan's truck. I'm like, okay, you gotta, you gotta find the ashes, and and she she says, um, oh, hang on. I said, well, check and see if they're in the in the hole. Which <laughs> she, so then I see the camera, you know, moving towards, and she goes, oh yeah, no, they are there. And then she says, um, oh, and there is somebody over there who's, I guess, there's a guy with a truck there. I said, yes, they'll come over and and put the, and I just think of my dad, and he would have said <laughs> he was such a loving man who loved them, and they love. Him. It was a, and it was he was a, also very humorous. Very oh humorous, and I could just picture him. Just pic- exactly. I could just laugh. picture him saying, "That's about what I'd expect from you guys," <laughs> <laughs> with a big, huge hug. So, David, thank you. Uh, Cupboard Master Ken has joined us, and yes. we have you have you'll tell us about what David has, what we have. Yeah. Ken. So we are drinking something new. David just told us he's never had this before, so that's exciting. Uh, and we haven't done this on the show yet either. We're trying a, a rum. And rum is uh, distilled from sugar cane mm. and sugar and molasses. And this is Appleton Estate, 12-year-old. It's m- aged a minimum of 12 years. Uh, and Appleton's been around for 265 years. So it's, it's been around for a long time. It's Jamaican-based. And so when you smell it and then when you sip it, you should be uh, smelling things. Like when I smell it, I'm smelling caramel and vanilla mm-hmm. and almonds and even hazelnuts and then some oakiness and coffee it's very very complex and i taste a lot of like the the i taste more of the woodiness but i smell more of like the caramely molassesy it's very yeah you're right the taste is quite oaky it's not sweet like you think of rums especially if you drink malibu it's like super sweet this This is is not not the same thing as that oh wow it is more like a sugar based whiskey. whiskey It tastes more like that. It is good, isn't it, Amanda? It. Amanda just said without a microphone, <laughs> it's so good. What do you think, David? So what do you think, David? Of, of, uh, now, David says he Appleton. hasn't had rum before. Yeah, so he's having it now. <laughs> what do you think of that? I mean, it's not it's not Akvavit, but oh, sorry, <laughs> it's beautiful. Mm, that's a good word for it. Isn't it's that beautiful. nice? Can I see the bottle? Not, you, uh, you know, give us some reggae. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, where is this from, Ken, you said? It's from yes. Jamaica. 
Oh, this is Jamaican rum, okay, which is where <laughs> rum should be from. Yeah, a lot of it is from the Caribbean. Oh, yeah. uh, it can no, be Puerto made Rico in other places that rum. make sugar. Anywhere that makes sugar can make rum. Uh, oh, but yeah, rum is, it's an underrated drink. Most people think of it as something you mix. And yeah. your cheaper well, you rums, you, you do. I would not mix this with Coke or eggnog. But you could this soak a Christmas cake because with here, this. Because here in British Columbia, this would run you approximately... About 40 bucks. Okay, 40 so not bucks. Bad. Yeah, which is the Beautiful. same as in Alberta. So, so okay. is this uh, is this what Jimmy Cliff was referring to uh, when he sang "By the Waters of Babylon"? I think so. <laughs> I think so. Yes, yes. So there you go. So enjoy. Thank you, Ken. Uh, so any of you who have tried, we found out that some people actually are taking our recommendations and buying stuff we yes, recommend. Yes, we had yeah. a listener. Uh, we had a listener. Who knew? I we, didn't we make have, that we assumption. Have influence over at least one person. <laughs> Try a decent rum. If all you've had is something it's like Bacardi or Malibu, seasonal, isn't it? Isn't just doesn't it, seem more. It feels like warm and toasty. It does. It does. But you, uh, Amanda, but Amanda's saying, drink it anytime. Anytime. So there you go. You really like this rum, Amanda. So I, let's I go do on too. To the, uh, the like tasting, yeah. and we'll keep on sipping some rum. Yeah, while and, we continue uh, talking, we'll have a t- conversation. Ricky's Allison. back on the mic. Yeah, we got Rick and Ken now back with us, and uh, David and Todd have talked a little bit about their dads. Uh, Ken and Rick, do you guys want to tell us a little bit about your dads? Sure. Do you want? I'll go first. You I go first, Ken. How about that? Um, yeah, I mean, my dad. I've I've known him all my life. He's uh, the big thing about my dad was. Um, that I recognize is he, w- he was a teacher. Uh, I mean, he was an accountant. Your dad's still alive. My dad yes. is still alive. Uh, he was a teacher. He loved people. Like, I think for me, you guys talked about what is that, what is that thing that, that uh, ran through him? He loved people. He loved to talk to people. He loved to yeah. uh, talk to strangers. It didn't matter what country he was in, if he was in a grocery store lineup or waiting <laughs> to throw stuff out at, at the dump, he would strike up a conversation. Yep. Uh, and it was just amazing. I, my kids make fun of me now because I think that's one of the few things I picked up from him yeah. uh, as part of uh, who I am. Uh, he And he really had a heart for uh, people who were, were struggling or hurt. Like he had a lot of, uh, he, w- he was a youth leader in our church and he continued working with young people. Uh, up until his 70s. He went to Mexico with 80s. us in his 60s, right? Yeah, when he was in his 60s, he, he came down to Mexico with us and stuff. So that was a that was a big part of who he was. But, you know, he also, he was a bit of a workaholic. He was a bit of a perfectionist. Uh, he had some pretty traditional understandings of the role of men and women. And that caused friction mm. within my family because my mom had wanted to actually have a career. And no, that was not going to happen. Uh, so there was, you know, there's always shadow sides to our, Mm -hmm. our parents as well. Um, he wasn't a particularly emotive man. Like, uh, you didn't know what his emotions were except for anger. That was the one emotion that was clear when he was feeling it. And again, I think that's something else I picked Mm -hmm. up from him. Uh, I'm not particularly emotive, but anger is the one that streams through. Mm -hmm. So I think I picked up some good and some stuff that is challenging. Yeah. What about you, Rick? Um, yeah, I, I lost my dad pretty young. He was, uh, I was about 19. And um, so it's interesting because it's now it's, uh, I have to sort of be careful what I piece together that was, you know, really him and what yeah, stuff that you, I've, and what's your uh, memory and what I've created him. that was him. Um, but as I've gotten older, uh, I've come to really appreciate him uh, more and more. He's a, uh, an academic. He was a professor. 
um, and uh, had PhD from Cornell and um, spoke like 14 languages or something and worked in like 30 languages. It was insane. He was a linguist. Um, and uh, and a little bit like your dad, that sounds Ken, like the same kind of thing. He was very personable. He's big, big kind of super boys funny. Your very dad. funny. Uh, <laughs> dad, dad humor. But yeah. uh, just very smart. I mean, he was like, I look back and go, dang, he was a, a smart boy. Um, and probably the first experiences I had with, uh, we always had different people living with us, um, either uh, Lorenzo from Guatemala or Langut from, uh, from uh, um, I forget where Langut was from, Zambia or somewhere. Yeah. And, Didn't he? Oh, um, sorry, keep, what, keep no, yeah, and, and uh, a Timaway. We just, we always had kind of either students that were needing a, you know, a place for a semester when they were, or like, again, we took our family savings and saved uh, this guy, Lorenzo, from the gorillas in Guatemala. Um, uh, they pegged him. He was a student leader. That they were going to assassinate him, and we basically sponsored him into the country. And um, so a lot of sort of social justice-y things from mm -hmm. an early age. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think the question about your dad. Well, that's so that's kind of <laughs> what I know and what I remember. And um, and on you know in all of that, he was the biggest supporter of me going after music and the arts. And he was the first one to say, "Look." university's not for everyone like yeah. don't, you don't have to oh. go do that and, um he's the first one to say go go chase the go chase the music mm. Mm. now each of you guys are also fathers as well as having fathers um and how do you think that your ideas of being a father differ now than it was before you were a father i know that my opinion of my parents, my perception of <laughs> my growing up changed a lot after I had my own kids. I've had to do much repenting. Um, how has your perspectives of fatherhood, of parenthood changed since becoming parents yourselves? I, I think for me, I mean, there's the kind of circumstantial thing of my actual dad not being able to be part of my life because uh, the split between my mom and dad came when I was three and my mom brought my sister and I here to Vancouver and my dad was still in Ontario. And so you live your life, uh, you know, and then when I, when Jen and I had kids of our own and they're 23 and 21 now, but uh, I would often think even when my kids were quite young, I would think, okay, now I've already spent more time hmm. with my boys than my dad was ever able to spend with me. And so I would think, and knowing who my dad was, he would, he would have longed for that. And that was a tremendous loss for him. And so I think one of the ways that I've tried to honor my dad is to, is to be grateful for that time uh, with my kids. I also think that it's much easier to be a dad um, than, when, than when my dad was a dad. Like, just, like, it, it's okay to, to spend that much time with your kids. Like, even I was there when my boys were born, all that kind of stuff, right? Mm. What about you, David? Mine, oh mine. <laughs> I, I mean, I love my children more than all the world. Yeah. But I also think that um, one of the amazing spiritual gifts of being a father is the recognition, the realization that you can never do it all right. Mm. 
There is no way that you can do it all right with another human being. Yeah. And so you do it. You do the best you're able to do. Um, I know that my my father's relationship with his father was problematic. I didn't hear about this until the last two weeks of my father's life. Mm. And of course, I never knew him because they were in Norway and he had died long before I was born. So I, I have recently, since you raised this issue and asked uh, us to meet and talk about it, I have thought a, a bit about <clears throat> why it was that my father was the way he was towards me. And I expect it was in part because of his recognition of the difficulty that had existed for him mm. in, in that time. So what, what, what is really vivid to me, I guess, is uh, having been loved as my sisters were by my mother and my father that that's riveted in all of us, that that becomes something that is, is kind of natural with your own children to just adore them. Mm. And I think I did learn, I mentioned my, my own initiation by my father in my bedroom that night mm. where he set me free. I think that that, I think that serves me well with my children. Now, is, something, is that something that you did with your children as well at a particular age? I was able to, to not cling to them, mm. to hold them dearly and tenderly, but not to demand and not to expect mm. at all. So my father had no expectations of me. Uh, he did not expect me to have a career or anything mm. like that. And uh, so I never felt under the burden of living up to something hmm. except what it means to be in the presence of the kingdom of God, hmm. but nothing else hmm. other than that. So, and by that, I mean being attentive and present to human beings that you meet on the street and um, seeking communion, seeking empathy instead of enmity. Mm. So I think for, I think it is an amazing thing to be a parent, to be a father, because you, you know, I often say when my children were born, each one of them, I was there as well, Todd, for mm. each of their births and dancing around the room with them when they entered the world. And before that, you know, you rub the belly of your wife and you woo them you sort of woo them from the eternal and you wonder who they are like what are they going to be like and then the moment they're born the very moment they're born the whole thing shifts 180 degrees you cannot imagine the world without them yeah. you couldn't imagine them before and now you can't imagine the world without them so it is this amazing gift of wonder that enters our life with a kind of a kind of weight 
that is like no other. Yeah. Like no other. Yeah, you you can talk about as 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 some of you have mentioned the 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 what can at times be one dimensional expression of emotion from from fathers that of anger that seems to be the acceptable emotion that can that can be shown like a wait till your dad gets home and you have this it can be this dread or the only acceptable way that men can feel that they can express emotion have you any of you um, felt like there has been cultural shifts in that that we are kind of moving on to a place where where m- men can actually <laughs> express what has always been inside them i suspect i'm i'm not a man i i just suspect that men have emotions the same way that women do um i do you think that there's still some of that residual stigma about remaining like stoic and emotionless mm. Or is it something that's kind of becoming part of like a bygone era? I, I think that, I think we'd like to think that that is true, but I think that there's still, I, I think there's uncomfortableness uh, when men, uh, I know I've experienced it when, when, mm. when you do try to actually express other emotions or other feelings. Uh, there is an uncomfortableness and a, and a shaming and a, so you shouldn't feel that way. Now, maybe men have done that to women too and said, oh, you shouldn't feel that way. But that's certainly how I've experienced mm. it. So mm. I think in theory we say, yes, men should. Um, and maybe that's just my personal experience with it. But uh, I think it's, I, I don't think it's as there as people think it is. Mm. I think, Ken, that you're probably right about that. Mm. But it's also interesting to me that <laughs> probably with grandchildren uh. that <laughs> for me I wouldn't be surprised at that mm-hmm. I had a you know my my son out in Victoria uh, Simeon the new theologian as I like to call him <laughs> he um, he and Roseanne had a little baby born to them the beautiful Otilia and um, it was a demanding demanding process uh, but I remember uh, remember my son I think it's okay for me to say this uh, I remember my son calling me sort of two or three days after she was born and uh, he was he was sobbing he was sobbing and I thought something had happened so I was terrified mm-hmm. and he said no 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 nothing's happened Nothing happened. Give me a few minutes. Just give me a few minutes. Mm. And then when he got control of himself, he said, Papa, you have always expressed your uh, love for us in ways that I've, I've often said in my mind, oh, get over it. Mm. Stop. <laughs> stained those things (laughs) and he said last night i was up with her at three in the morning and now i know why (laughs) so it's this yeah i mean there's nothing you know us men don't give birth to children we don't give birth to children we are as wh auden said kind of uh you know a little a little 
tale on the body of nature. <laughs> Women give birth to children. Women nurture them in their womb and suckle them, give them life every day. And, and we are the bystanders. Mm. We can be present. We can do everything we can do. But it is an absolute wonder to us at men, as men, mm. the women in our life. Yeah. Like there is nothing else like that that we ever experience. And then this beautiful new being comes into the world. It's... Um, yeah. It's an amazing encounter with the most profound aspects of humility and wonder holding hands. Mm. And uh, I think that an awful lot of the terrible enmity that has existed between men and women in society is probably born out of a failure in our culture to help men understand that. Mm. to help men understand that they are the servants in this, the servants mm. and only the servants. Well, I, I say amen to that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so what's your next question, Allison? <laughs> so my next question. <laughs> yes. um, I'd like to, to get your, your guys' opinions on what you think the most like the biggest thing you learned from your father or that you learned from, from the memory of your father or like what, what's the most imprinting thing that you think that relationship has left? I think, you know, we just, this, this last question, kind of that tension between yeah. like s things that we classically think of as strong strength, anger, you know, power as we've classically understood it. And then a vulnerability that is something different, but winds up being much more, I would argue, powerful, hmm. stronger. And my dad, and I often think of him, I, I often kind of am praying about what would it be like to be an only child as well, that that was different, that his way of seeing the world was, was impacted by that. But this tension between this strength and vulnerability, I think it's something that I saw him living out. You can see it sometimes in the most kind of benign of stories, right? When you expect that anger from your mm. parents and you get something different. So Rick knows this story well. Um, and it, it's not really that much of a story. It's just an incident where I, when I was a kid living with, my dad was a single dad in the 70s at this point. And uh, my sister and I lived with him and he was trying his best. He was great, often impatient and angry. And so we could be scared of him in some ways, didn't want to, to um, see that anger directed towards us. And he was working, and, and by this point, I was old enough, I guess, we were old enough to be home on our own instead of in some kind of care. And uh, he had told us, like, don't, he told me, don't play baseball. I was always throwing a tennis ball or a baseball against the side of a house and, or playing catch with friends or whatever. And he said he had given me clear instructions to not throw the ball around the kitchen window. It was southern Ontario, and windows cost a lot of money, and you know where this is going. And I threw the baseball directly through. I think I would throw it to my friend, and I remember them... They were terrible catch or something. It was you clearly a bad their person fault. To play it was with. a good throw, <laughs> but um, they fault. missed it they and missed it went it, yes. through the kitchen window into the kitchen, <laughs> like through all the glass. And I, I can still remember the feeling, thinking like, Dad's gonna be so mad when he gets home, and thinking, is there a way to hmm. to stop him from seeing this? He came home, 
he wasn't angry. And I remember him singing. He always had a song in his head, usually some kind of church song, gospel song. And I remember him singing as he kind of repaired it and put the wood up temporarily um, before <coughs> before it was fixed. And uh, and I expected such anger, and instead I got something different, and it was it was it impacted me greatly. Um, so that kind of uh, that and and I think for him that he did demonstrate to me that this is something, you know, bigger than the baseball story, but this was something that he was willing to let me see that he was struggling in a good way, not, not a bad way, but with some of the images that he was given of what it meant to be a man, what it meant to hmm. be strong, and that he demonstrated something so much better than those things to me as, as a son. Hmm. Um, I think for me, it's, it's been seeing my dad in the last, couple years he's now in a care home uh dementia is setting in yeah and yet uh his, his he keeps saying to me whenever i get to visit him uh during these covid times um how much he just loves us the four of us has how that always been the case like has no he's ne he mm. the the expression of that love i mean he, he began to express love a lot more when he developed a deeper faith with God mm. and understood that expressing love was, was an okay thing to do. But certainly more so in the last couple of years of just saying, you, you, you guys are my everything. Like, I'm the luckiest mm. man in the world, mm. he says, to have my dad the used four to say of you. Yeah. Uh, and I usually say, well, three of us anyways. <laughs> um, but it's, it's his gratitude and his his realization at the end of his life for all the things he did. And he mm. says, I had, I had a great life. I got to travel. I got to do all these things. I met, I met amazing people. And yet for him, his greatest thing was his, his children and, and, and grandchildren. And that has helped me put into perspective a bit for myself, uh, yeah. what is important, but also to see my dad in a different light. Yeah. So, oh. um, if we move on to some of the, the metaphorical language that we use about God, um, often God is described in traditionally masculine terms, at least through, through most translations. Uh, certainly in the, the language of the Trinity, you have the Father, you have the Son, you have the Spirit. Um, in mm. what ways do you think that the, the concept of the fatherhood of God has been uh, a blessing, um, how has it also been troublesome? Have you experienced that you've you've struggled with those with that language with with those concepts? Let's hear David first. <laughs> David, the uh, fatherhood of God. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's such a deep, deep part of human culture. You know, this issue of gender, mm -hmm. uh, masculine and feminine is at the elemental, in the elemental register of the symbolism of virtually all human cultures. Hmm. But it's not, it's not intended to tell us something about male and female. It's intended to tell us something about the engagement with opposites, hmm. engagement with the other. That's the point of it. The only point that God is referred to in the masculine, and of course he's referred to 
in the maternal mm -hmm. and in many other ways in the Hebrew scripture. But the only way that it's there in both Jewish scripture and liturgy and in Christian liturgy, the only reason it's referred to in the masculine is, is not because of what it says about God, but because of what it says about us. Mm -hmm. It is trying to say to us, it's saying to all of creation, you are my beloved. You are my spouse. You are the whole creation is a woman, is feminine. We are all called to be birth givers. The image, the icon of the human vocation is not Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the icon of being, but not of the vocation. Mm -hmm. The icon of the vocation is the Theotokos, the birth giver of God in the world, is Mary. Yeah. And all of us are called to be that. All of us are called to give birth to God's love, divine love in the world, which is freely given, which is always full of surprises, in which there is no requirements, no demands, yeah. no judgment, only wonder. So obviously in the history of Christian culture, this is very problematic, but I was talking with my one of my daughters here who's deeply interested in politics and running for it, and she was mm -hmm. reflecting on the American election. And she said to me, you know, it's occurred to me that what we see in the American election is this unbelievable, ridiculous kind of caricature of masculinity and yeah. power. Amen. On the one yeah. hand. And on the other hand, she said, in, in, in Joe Biden, what I see is maternity, mm -hmm. is the one who is willing to just receive and to hold and to not presume and to care for enlarging the tenderness within, within the civil society. So, I mean, she, I, I was really yeah. <laughs> touched by this, this sense of, because my daughter is a pretty fierce feminist. <laughs> so this isn't said lightly, but it's a recognition that there are these, this kind of symbolism has been used and, and articulated. It's so baroque in our society. And of course, as a result, of course, it's, it's full of problematic matters. Mm -hmm. What do we do with people that have had terrible yeah. experience yeah. with their fathers? Yeah. I mean, that's awful. So uh, what do we do with the fact that in my tradition and in Catholicism, we refer to, you know, Todd and Ken as father. Mm -hmm. We always say father. Yeah. But I, I have pointed out to many a priest, you know, we say that not because you are, but because we want you to be. Mm. We want you to be a father like the image of Jesus is, Jesus' father is in the scripture. Mm. You know, that amazing text. I mean, we see it everywhere in the scripture where in the baptism of Jesus Christ, the voice comes from heaven. Behold, 
behold my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. That is what we as fathers are called to do. It's, I, I hear that text, you know, I can feel it. And in, in my spirituality and prayer and faith, it is, you know, affirming and, and life-giving. But as someone who worked in a church for decades, this, Allison, this thing you're talking about, people's kind of distorted image of the fatherhood of God mm-hmm. in various ways because of maybe their own father, but also because of the way the church has taught that, you, so you say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, that twisted concept that the way to please God is with, you know, like our good choices or something, right? That, that there is this standard that I have to live up to, to, um, to, uh, you know, receive the love of the father. Mm-hmm. And it's something that as ministers or as pastors, I think when you're doing it properly, you're always pushing against this, right? Whether it's from the positive or negative side, someone who says I've messed up so much that I can't possibly be loved by God, and you're trying to undo that, or someone who thinks they're loved by God because they see themselves as having made good choices and done everything properly. There's always trying to pull that apart, right? Mm-hmm. That's, well, that's really so significant. Just one last mm-hmm. thing, if of I course. may. I mean, God's son was an unbelievable failure. Yeah. He died as a common bloody thief or somebody who was seen as as dangerous to the society. So what is it saying to us? It's the whole of the scripture is trying to overcome the great idolatry of human beings, which is to think that God is in control, to think that God is power instead of understanding that God, the God above the gods, is weak, mm. is weak, and pulls life forth from death. And the only one who can do that is the one who has nothing to presume. Mm. Amen. No, um, David, you you bring up so many good things there. <laughs> um, one thing that that I would love, if you if you wouldn't mind um, speaking to us a little bit about, as I as I understand it, um, the Orthodox tradition places more importance on on the incarnation than on um, than on than on Easter. That that's kind of like the bigger thing. Am I right in that understanding? Or I understand what you mean? Okay, um, I I recently was um taking a class where where the professor was talking about how the the example that we have of god is that the ultimate relationship is that god condescends god god transgresses all boundaries all holiness like to to be god incarnate to be in solidarity with humanity and and I love how you talk about the the failure of that Jesus was was weak in so many ways, and and yet was was God incarnate showing us how to be in relationship with God, and I think it sets a beautiful beautiful imagery for for how we can be parents, how we can be children, how 
how we can relate to to our heavenly Father. Um, and I think it's something that we have often confused. You talk about power and confusing God with that when when that's not what the scriptures seem to say. The scriptures are all a critique of Zeus, mm. a critique of Baal, yeah. a critique of all the gods of power. That's mm. what the narrative is. The narrative from Genesis through to the book of Revelation, the 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 kind of I think the kind of urtext of the scripture is about human blasphemy. Is about the human misunderstanding of God, and and that's not a problem around God. <laughs> it's a problem around how we think of God yeah. and what we do with our lives as a result, and that's why men think they have to be strong mm -hmm. and powerful and in control instead of present yes. and blessing. Yes. Mm. Present and blessing. Mm. It's so beautifully I, I, put. I, it makes me think of that song. That you and I were talking about today, Allison, for a bit. It's a another Paul Simon song. I refer to his lyrics often, but uh, <laughs> um, it's one of his more contemporary songs. It's a couple albums ago, a few albums mm -hmm. ago. Rewrite called Rewrite, yeah. yeah. And uh, he has a similar sentiment in an older song called Slip Sliding Away, but this one's a bit deeper. Where he so the the song is is uh, structured as it's a uh, a novelist or a, someone writing a book. Um, so he says, "I've been working on a rewrite." Right, going to change the ending. So in this part, he says, "I'll eliminate the pages." So you talk about David, um, this desire to be strong and you know heroic, or or however we put it. Um, he says, "I'll eliminate the pages where the father has a breakdown, and he has to leave the family, but he really meant no harm." Going to substitute a car chase and a race across the rooftops, where the father saves the children and he holds them in his arms. And I think as Paul Simon writes that lyric, I think he gets it, that that um, this constant drive for the heroic is something that doesn't work. So it's always just something that's that's improperly longed for rather than being able to be present, right? Um, mm -hmm. Anyway, I'm always thinking about that, that lyric. <laughs> I, was, yeah. so I was just thinking, partially tying into that in one of your earlier questions, I think the one thing I've learned from being a parent that I never realized, aside from how bloody hard it is, because it looked real easy, uh, from the other side of it, but um, I never, I never realized how many times I'd have to say I'm sorry, mm. uh, yeah, especially right. yeah. to my son. Um, uh. I've had to, you know, and and for me, the the image of God as Father is perfectly uh, summed up in the story of the prodigal. Like that to me, the father who says, it doesn't matter what you did. I'm willing to actually not just die once, but die twice to put my shield around you yet again. And and no matter what, it doesn't matter. And and to carry that even further to s for me to say, I'm sorry uh, to my son when I have mm -hmm. not done what I not been like the prodigal, not been like the spendthrift father. Who and just how said, old is your son now? He's now 15, yeah. and I think my first apology to him was when he was like two and a half, <laughs> uh, and I haven't stopped. Um, no. And it's just, it's, it's humbling, and it's hard, and it's just way more difficult than I thought it was going to be. 
um, because I thought I'd be good at this. And then I realized, oh, no, I'm as crappy at it as I am at most things I attempt to do. Oh, but that's so everybody can. Like the I amount know, of times. You know what I mean? Yeah, like I, the amount of times <laughs> I have to apologize to my children. And I think that it's something that, that my husband and I have been very intentional about that when we know that we've overreacted to something, when we know that we have certainly not behaved properly, that we we try really hard to apologize to our kids that's because I think that's important. Yeah, that's part of the spiritual formation of your children is to mm -hmm. witness that. Mm -hmm. That's Thank one of you. the gifts of family mm -hmm. is that that occurs in the primal relationship and children learn, ah, uh, my parents aren't God. So when he talks uh, to the psych, when he talks uh, to his therapist, there'll be something good to say. Hey, <laughs> my kids got lots of good stuff for their therapists in the future. I think of if I could just add one little Please. piece to this. You know, one of the extraordinary stories in the Hebrew Scripture about fathers and sons is, of course, the story about Abraham and Isaac. Mm -hmm. And imagine that conversation. Imagine that conversation, where Isaac, where Abraham. And Sarah, who had longed to have children, couldn't have children. And finally, since they thought they'd received a promise from God that they would be the father and mother of a nation, then Sarah, being a liberal and generous, said to Abraham, well, you know, given our culture and all, maybe you should spend the night with Hagar. I mean, that's not an easy matter. Not an easy matter. It's mythic. And he does. And slam bang, thank you, ma'am. The moment it happens, all of a sudden, Sarah becomes pregnant. So we have Ishmael and Hagar, and we have Isaac and Sarah. And then we have that extraordinary narrative, which, which in my mind and to the mind of many rabbis in the Jewish tradition is the most significant story about Jewish identity, which is where Abraham says to his son, come with me, we're going to make a sacrifice, carry the wood, carry the wood. Mm. And they go to the mountain and Isaac says, and how many children have said this to their father in their own way, have said this to their father? Where is the sacrifice? Where's the lamb? Where's the kid? Oh, I'm the kid. And they go to the mountain and prepare the altar. And you know, in the Hebrew, it's the binding of Isaac. Mm -hmm and he is bound. This is an unbelievable story. What is it about? What is it saying? Well, the last, the last thing that Abraham had to give up was his assumptions about his children being his future. Hmm. He had to let go of that. This is a story about not placing on your children all that you have not achieved or wanted to achieve and freeing them to be who they are. Amen. And that is why Isaac 
in his name is called the one who laughs. (laughs) (laughs) I'm finally free. Mm. I am to be who I am. And that to me is what is said in that revelation in the gospel where the one Lord of all history speaks and says, this is my beloved son, no matter how it works out, mm-hmm. whom I am well pleased. Oh, and so my sense, fathers, fathers, mm-hmm. if I could do anything yeah. in this life, anything at all to make any change, it would be to have fathers bless their children. Mm-hmm. Because my sense is that mothers do it so naturally. They do it bringing them into the world. They do it when they suckle them at the breast. But fathers to put your hands on their head and to say, may God bless you, keep you. I mean, to me, it's, it, it makes for a whole life. Mm, it does. As, as we, we look to, to wrapping up, I, I want to know what you guys are grateful for about fatherhood, about having a father, that relationship. What, what sort of blessings and gifts have you seen that have come from that? Ricky, we'll throw you up first. Rick, you, had, Rick, you like yeah. I I was at Simon Fraser. Yeah, yeah. I was a student. Um, I remember that. And uh, back in those days, pre-internet, uh, yeah. there were televisions around the around the campus. Yeah. And I had been in a lecture, and your dad was a professor at Simon Fraser, but he was away in Atlanta at yeah. the time. And uh, when I came out of the lecture hall. Uh, all the televisions, there were just monitors around, like, and they were the big square ones, not the. Yeah. And the television said, "Todd, we please contact um, student services or whatever it is, or the office or something, right?" And I thought, "Oh no, like, what has happened?" And uh, so I did, and and um, and it was it was you. Uh, it said to call you, and I called you, and you told me that your your dad had died. I think now, at the age you're at now. You've lived uh, over half your life without, without your dad being physically present here. So when right. I when I hear yeah. Allison ask the question like, "What are you grateful for?" I do think of you right away. <laughs> like that. Yeah, uh, uh, I mean, uh, I'm thankful that I was born <laughs> and that I had mm. a great home and and loving parents and supportive parents. I, it's kind of boring. I don't have you know oh, a lot of great. strife and angst. Um, it was. Born in a amazing part of the world and got to travel and because uh, we have family in the states and in Puerto Rico and you know travel and stuff like that. So, um, but now being being a parent, uh, I think you know there's always I don't know if it ever ends. There's you, imposter syndrome is always there, uh, especially because I'm sort of artsy fartsy and I you know I don't feel like I have a real job and I don't feel like I really <laughs> provide uh, you know the way. Uh, that my dad did and um, I don't have you know the education my dad did and um, but uh, I mean yeah it's I I can't really put it into words the three we have three boys and like you said David just I mean uh, you know they're they're everything the love is unreal and uh, that was one thing my dad was great at too you know right up till he died I was Sitting on his lap and holding yeah. his hand, we'd always hold hands in public. And yeah, and <laughs> I remember you would you more than anybody, you would say "I love you" when you left the house, like yeah. last. Your dad was always because I, I remember 
my family wasn't like non-affectionate, right. but yeah. we weren't that. And I remember thinking like, that's so great. And then when you're down, you were Mennonites. Oh, <laughs> uh, we were, you guys we yeah. were Catholic, I guess was, yeah. yeah. But, uh, no, well, yeah. I know how your dad spoke about you. Cause I was, I, he, he would speak about you when you weren't there to me, even at yeah. a young age. And I yeah. can say now with confidence, he would be so proud of you and what oh. you've done. And uh, you should have heard what he said about you and you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole other podcast. Ken. Um, what am I grateful for? Yeah. In being a dad or having a dad or both? Both, both either. Both. Um, you have agency in the answer here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's an interesting question. Gratitude around something that I've had no... to. I was going to say I had no choice over. I mean, I had no choice over having a dad. I guess I had a certain amount of choice about being a dad. Um, but it's a role that is just uh, th- sort of, it's there. It's th- yeah. You know, you don't get to choose the title or anything. And I think I'm most grateful for, um, for, for the love and for the things that I've, I've learned about myself and about them. Hmm. Um, I'm so grateful when I see, um, when I just see them say and do things that are, you know, insightful or, or, you know, a little mischievous or a little creative (laughs) or something like that. And I, I see their independence and I see their, their person. I think maybe that's what I'm most grateful Mm -hmm. for is that as I've gotten older, I've learned to see the person that my dad is, not just see him as dad. And I'm now beginning to see the person that my children mm. are. Mm. So it's the personhood that I'm most grateful for. Todd? What, what am I grateful for? Yeah. Oh, I mean, I, you've heard already, I, I'm in the shadow of my dad's death still uh, just a few months ago. And so um, I have felt nothing but gratitude. Uh, I, I haven't... I, I was really sad when my dad died and so suddenly but I didn't feel a darkness and you can never know right you can never know whether you'll be overcome with darkness more than light but I felt even right after he died I was riding my bike the next day and and just felt this light uh this sense of how blessed I was to have my dad as a father even though we didn't live in the same place for most of my life and how how much that mattered now mm. and how grateful I was for his life. Like I know that even in spite of how he died, that he, he loved his life. And uh, um, so it's just a way of saying it. And with Rick, just, it just, I'm grateful for my dad and I'm tremendously blessed to, to, to be a father, though that comes mm. with, with real challenges. But uh, uh, so I'm grateful for all of it, I suppose. Mm. David, do you have anything that you'd like to to add in? Well, it's wonderful to hear you speak about this, each of you. And, um, you know, to be touched by the the gift that you have in um, your parents that brought you into the world. Uh, So let me end on a slightly Mm -hmm. different note. I'm grateful that my father taught me how to smoke a cigar. Yes. That's wonderful. My father would, uh, you know, in the church that I grew up, smoking was taboo as well as drinking. And we never knew about sex. So (laughs) more taboo than taboo. (laughs) 
So, uh, but my father used to light a little incense on Sunday afternoons as he would disembowel the heretical sermon of the minister. <laughs> and uh, he would uh, go to his bedroom and take a cigar uh, once a month or so out of the top drawer in his dresser. And uh, it was a um, white owl cigar, which had that extraordinary sensual blonde woman on the, uh, <laughs> on the package, which was one of my early fantasies, uh, slightly, different than the, slightly different than the Eaton's catalog. And, uh, <laughs> and he would smoke the cigar and he would blow smoke rings. And I noticed that he would try to blow them in threes one smoke ring with another one going through it, another uh, one going through it. And I realized he was very Trinitarian. Yeah. Indeed. That's good. <laughs> so on one occasion when I, I don't know how old I was, 13, 14, I was sitting, we were talking about the sermon and what have you, I was sitting on the couch and we had a, a picture, a lithograph of Jesus Christ weeping over Jerusalem, hanging above the couch. And uh, obviously I'd shown an interest in the cigar. I don't remember those details, but my father said, so Sonny boy, do you want to smoke a cigar? And I said, really? Yeah. He said, well, go and get one. They're you know, my side of the dresser in your mom and my bedroom. Go and get one and come and bring it here. I'll show you how. So I went and got it and took the cellophane wrapping off it and and went to him and stood in front of him. He was sitting in his favorite chair. And he said, so now the first thing you have to do is you have to bite the end off. It's a kind of circumcision. <laughs> and so I, I bit the end off. <laughs> I said, what do I do with it? Swallow it? No, 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 no. no. I'll get it. <laughs> so he then said, now put it in your mouth and you draw in and I'll light it for you. So here you go. So I lit it. He lit it for me and I drew heavily in and and then I went and sat down on the couch with the cigar, my father sitting across the room with mm. his cigar. And I thought, so how do I blow smoke rings? Ah. So I, I began to work to blow smoke rings. Wow. I managed to get a couple of them to go up. So they stood like a halo around the image of Christ weeping over oh. <laughs> I realized that the past comes to me from the future. So I, I smoked this a little bit and all of a sudden, from the kitchen, we had a very small house. From the kitchen, my mother oh, came no. rushing out. <laughs> and my father's name was Finn, which is the, the mm. mythic resurrection mm -hmm. hero in Irish mythology, Finn McCool, from which we get Finnegan's Wake. And my mother's name was Solvay, the way of the sun mm. in Norwegian. So my mother came rushing in and she looked and she saw me and she looked at my father and she said, Finn, Finn, what are you doing with our son? <laughs> and my father leaned back, perfectly tranquil, took another puff on his pipe, blew three smoke rings, and said, Solve, Solve, in such a tender way. If all the devil ever gets of David is a little smoke, <laughs> we will be fortunate indeed. Oh, so my amen. father knew that I was a sinner. <laughs> that blessed me. Uh, how's that? That's a how's wonderful that, place. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. Uh, this has been a really lovely conversation. I, I feel like 
Yeah, I don't know. I just, I feel such, such... You want to go listen to this now? I know, I do. Um, well, your introduction to it was just beautiful. Yeah. Oh, thank you, David. Beautiful. I was wondering if I could be uh, precocious enough to ask if you could maybe end us with a bit of a benediction, if you would would be so kind and gracious. God blesses us. God keeps us. And the God above the gods makes his face to shine upon us, makes that face which is beyond anything else to shine upon us. And as hard as it is, we ask that the Holy One, blessed be he, gives us peace, the hard peace of the Incarnation. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you so much, David. There was a picture that gained some currency recently. A, a politician who is in his late 70s was shown in the photo embracing and kissing his adult son, who I think is 50 years old now. The photo was actually sent out by the politician's opponents, the insinuation being that it was disgusting, inappropriate. The response, though, was telling. Comments online, person after person. This is not disgusting at all. My dad died not long ago, they would say. Or, I wish I could feel what it's like to be hugged by him again. Or even, this just shows me what a dad should be. My dad was never that. I've lived my life longing for such affection. To me, this shows strength, not weakness, in a man's character. My dad died at the end of August this year, 2020. Due to family separation, I really only lived seven years with my dad, and I'm in my 50s now. But he was a great dad, so funny and loving, and I know that he loved me. He told me so regularly. I told him the same. I kind of just wish that I could speak with each of you listening, those who would want to, and just share stories about our families. I could tell you some good stories about my dad. Before and during the pandemic, one of the ways that we touched base was by FaceTime. My dad loved it. At 78, he was given to act as if the technology was slightly miraculous. He would look at himself on the screen. He would see one of my sons in the background, my background, and he would scream and holler out, hey, there's Matthew. And then he would start talking to Matt, saying things that made Matt laugh and made Matt know how much his papa loved him. In the spring, during one of those calls, when it was just dad and I, he mentioned that he'd been struggling lately. He couldn't figure out why he couldn't feel good. He was not someone who faced severe mental health difficulties in his life. As far as I know, he faced one similar to those uh, many of us face some generalized anxiety, a time or two of something a little more concerning. He loved people so much. He was social. COVID restrictions were hard on him. He fully supported them and followed them, but this world was already much smaller than it had been for him, and it was becoming even smaller still. He tried a medication change at the recommendation of a doctor. I live on the West Coast. He lived in Ontario, so I'm not exactly sure of how things happened, but it seemed to me that the medication change sparked one of those terrible side effect reactions and in the end 
my dad was overcome by a kind of sorrow, an inability to feel okay. His last words written on a post-it note conveyed his love and his apologies. I share this with you for a couple of reasons. Firstly, a kind of public service announcement. We don't know who will fall victim to such despair. I can list many, many people in my life who are dealing with much more severe mental health issues than my dad dealt with. And somehow they keep going. So tell someone if you're feeling overcome and don't be afraid to ask. Secondly, I want to tell anyone listening that the manner of death does not define or overwhelm the beauty of a life. My dad truly was one of the funniest, most engaging, most loving people I've ever known. He saw the humanity in all people. He did not think of himself as better than anyone else. So the words of a, one of the greatest English poets, Gerard Manley Hopkins, he wrote so beautifully, though he faced much pain and sorrow and illness in his life. He wrote things like, The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It's said that when Manley Hopkins, who died at 45 years old of typhoid, when he was on his deathbed, he said these words as his last, and I know that my dad lived life like this, and I'm grateful. Gerard Manley Hopkins, upon facing the moment of his death, said simply, I am so happy. I am so happy. I loved this life. May you who have listened be blessed. We pray this blessing upon you and those you love.